Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back to COVID <laughs> Bonus 8. And just prior to starting, Dr. <laughs> Bell almost lost an eye. Mm-hmm. She made fun of me and then snapped her headphones <laughs> and lost her eye. It was under the table. That's so, not true, but okay, let's go back. A week. <sighs> starting seems, into in June 29th. Seems so reviewing long the literature. Ago. All right. Study number one. Humanuke, Humanic at all, Clinical and Translational Science Journal. So they looked at, you know, remdesivir, and they looked at two phase one studies evaluating safety and pharmacokinetics of the single escalating and multiple IV doses of remdesivir. But basically they found that anything, any kind of complication of the medication was very mild to moderate, no big deal, nobody needed anything crazy, and that once daily dosing is appropriate. Apparently Almost equal to the Flintstone vitamin. The and chewable or the like the, the, the chewable, chalky yeah, one like or the gummy one? The chance of side effects to the Flintstone vitamin, very low. Much like remdesivir. There you go. So <laughs> then there was a little article in the Lancet, Child and Adolescent Health. And this was actually one uh, that they did with uh, 582 kids that were PCR confirmed. And it was actually across 25 countries in Europe. And uh, what they found, they were just kind of looking at the group as a whole, and 25% of these youngsters had pre-existing conditions. And that's, see, to me, that's low. 25% yeah. of kids had pre-existing conditions? Because that's kind of, to me, always been the thing that it was like, was my kid having a pre-existing condition? If not, okay, they are okay. It seems like it's high to me. But anyway, 62% were admitted to the hospital. 8% went to the ICU of that 582 people. Four percent ended up on a ventilator, and 0.69 percent unfortunately succumbed to the disease, um, which was four kids. So, again, uh, it's a significant risk factor for ICU admission of being younger than a month, uh, being male again. Dang it, this being male thing. Uh, Good thing ha- you're nowhere near being a kid. <laughs> yeah, and having pre-existing medical conditions. Um, so yeah, it's uh, interesting. You know, we again we look at the kids as having relatively mild disease, but not always. All right. So next study, Daly and Robinson. Now this is a preprint, not yet pre um, peer reviewed, but you know it's just kind of looking at what they've noticed and kind of the survey data on what you know people have done as far as we're just trying to tie you back to our addiction world. And so they looked at percentages of people who report drinking four or more alcoholic beverages a week. So 12% of these participants pre-COVID drank four or more times a week, up to 18% by early April among U.S. adults. There were seven over 7,000 people that they looked at. And what they found is that the people who drank the most were under the age of 50, white, unmarried, and from households earning more than 40000 a year. And when they looked at over 12,500 people in the UK, they had similar results. Honestly, I, I would have assumed the numbers were higher. Than 12 to 18%. I would. I would have too. Maybe. 
I, I just think it would be. I, I think wonder it is who higher. they surveyed. I don't know, but they should call around here. I'm just saying. I think it's higher. Ooh. That was well timed, yeah. well played. So, what, did you have a few drinks this morning? Yeah, that was not. <laughs> but yeah, I just think it's higher. I just think, uh, from my practice, it just seems like people are staying at home drinking more. And and in fact, the uh, the liquor store in town, I believe they said they more than doubled their normal sales. Mm. So one of the bigger ones. So, so did they increase employment? I think they're busy, busy, busy. Yeah. I'm saying, did they have to hire more people, which was a good economic stimulus? Uh, I'm not. I'm not really reviewing their payroll. You know, I should have talked to my sister-in-law this weekend. She works for uh, a brewery nearby. I should probably not say it. Not locally, Little Falls, but in nearby, Minnesota. That's it. Yeah. Yep. And she works in HR, so I should have asked her, like, have they had to hire more people? Yeah, but the, anyway. those are different. Because... Not a brewery, like a bottling company. Oh, okay. Hmm. So next, we're going to MMWR, May 2020, and uh, it was kind of interesting. They did a little look at uh, a uh, prison in Louisiana, and they looked at 98 incarcerated uh, people, and they that were actually quarantined after exposure. Uh, and 72% of those people actually got infection, including 32 who had no symptoms. 45%. Whoa, wait. No symptoms. Yep, that can happen. Okay, I'm just making sure. There has been, you know, off Mm -hmm. and on. Is there asymptomatic? I don't know. So, yeah. Again, what what are the symptoms? So, additionally, 18 people actually developed a positive after originally getting a negative. Okay, you're going a little bit too crazy here. Yeah, I mean, it's that whole thing that sometimes the test is wrong or sometimes our viral load is lower initially. And sometimes there's asymptomatic spread. So yeah, so do you so let's say you have a nursing home patient or excuse me, worker and they're negative, do you send them right back to work or do you retest them based on this? So, I don't know. Mm. Okay, nothing Anyway, of that. moving on. So now we're looking and now this is a cool study because if you actually pay attention and listen for the next few minutes, we're going to say something completely opposite in a few minutes. But this study, Journal of Hospital Infection, Rinspun. Um, autoclave sterilization and 70% ethanol treatment of surgical masks and N95 respirators. So those are the things that they're commonly doing to um, kind of sterilize the the equipment in hospitals during this COVID-19 pandemic, basically, obviously, to conserve the supplies because there's obviously a short of a shortage, excuse me. But what they found is that these methods, so this autoclaving and the ethanol treatment is actually compromising the efficiency, filter breathability, and in some cases do cause physical damage to the masks. And so they feel that this decontamination and reuse is probably needing to be relooked at. Yep. Let's look at it again. Which we will in a couple days, but a few minutes in podcast world. I think you should actually look at hospitals that are reusing them like that infection rates of staff and then have one place that doesn't do that hmm. just a thought so anyway another preprint and this one is actually uh it's about by marshall. the whole fomite Mar- spread yep. marshall head out this is this is just crazy uh because we've had all this stuff that has been out that said oh you can't you can't spread this by touching something that somebody else touched. Um, and I don't know. They just keep doing this. Is that just RNA? Is it, what is it? Well, they looked at a, they looked at workplace screening of asymptomatic employees in Europe. 
and the U.S. And they looked at this uh, and showed that locations with SARS-CoV-2 contaminated surfaces were 10 times more likely to have employees who are RT-PCR positive than locations with no or very few surfaces that were positive. So basically what they're saying is, hey, people are, if there's people around there that are, that are getting sick, that they have a lot of surfaces that are positive for it. But where did they find the, uh, what were the worst areas there, Kurt? You are lost. No, I'm not. The three locations that had <laughs> one or more employees test positive for COVID-19, none of whom were symptomatic at the time of testing. And they were finding it on break room chairs, workbenches, door handles. These were the most contaminated surfaces. So don't touch break room chairs, workbenches, or door handles again. (laughs) Good luck. All right. So we're going to move on to Colorado and MMWR and Marshall et al. Oh, I wonder if it's the same dude. Interesting. Anyway, he assessed COVID-19 exposures in a random sample of Colorado residents who had tested positive in the 18 days before Colorado issued its stay-at-home order on March 26th. So the two weeks are roughly before that. Only 27% knew that they had a contact with a lab-confirmed COVID case at that point. 47% knew it came at work, 24% within their household. Now, of the remaining people who did not have a known contact, so 265 of these 364 people, only 30% reported contact with the person who had any type of fever or symptoms that would be suggestive because, you know, if that first group had a positive. This is just mm, what other things that they have. Where did they find the most likely exposures in this group? Um, gatherings of greater than 10 people, domestic travel, working in a healthcare setting, visiting a healthcare setting, and using public transportation. Wow. Can it be aerosolized? Ooh, that's the big thing here this last few days. Well, um, I don't know. We'll find out. I'm looking at domestic travel and gatherings and yeah. public transportation. That looks a little bit aerosolizing. Yeah. So we'll see. Ah, then then here's a good one. I, I couldn't pass <laughs> this up in Guau this is, at this is the This is the coffee table journal at yeah. Kurt's. Yeah, it's from Coffee the journal, table. Uh, Andrology. Uh, that's a great one. So anyway, this guy they they address the presence of viral. What if it's is a female? No, at L. No, I can't. At L is not the first. <laughs> so, <laughs> and the, so they're looking for viral RNA in the semen of twenty three patients during the acute and recovery phases of SARS CoV two infection. Uh, all patients tested negative for it in the semen, uh, suggesting that well, sexual transmission through semen is probably unlikely. Uh, I'm still confused. How are you convincing people to give a sample when they're acutely ill with COVID? But, but my I, other question, I guess I'll have to wait for the paper to come out. You know, but, some of it's saying that people who are more severely ill are, you know, transmitting, you know, disease longer and so you'd think that if you're going to test the most severely ill so the ventilated patients how are you testing them careful yeah anyway I just I don't know. just something to think about wait for the paper yes okay so now we're going to move on to the new england journal of medicine feldstein 186 cases of multi-system inflammatory syndrome misc in children between march 15th and may 20th so a two-month period of time looking at 26 different states in those health center areas and um, 
So the most children who were positive for COVID-2, um, so 131 of them, were previously healthy. But it was actually pretty highly uh, led to severe and life-threatening issues. I am having trouble getting this out. So 80% of the kids in this 186 cases had to be in the ICU. and 20% needed a ventilator. 48%, so almost half of them needed some type of vasoactive support. Like That's a lot to me. That would be scary if my kid needed, like, yeah, the funny thing is I, leave I, a fed. My glasses were kind of messed up. I thought it said they received Vaseline support. I'm <laughs> like, that makes no sense at all. That's worse. Um, and 2% of these kiddos died, which, yeah, I just, it's crazy. And again, we have this whole thing where 73% of these kids were previously healthy. So it's that whole, it's not always the kids that had a pre-existing condition. Yeah, and I think, uh, again, it's this whole thing where, where we still look at kids as having relatively mild disease, but when, uh, you know, they get MISC, it can be not so great. So every once in a while. So then let's move on to uh, a little one that was in the health Disability and Health Journal. That's one that will cheer you up. Um, Landis et al., they found that... Uh, it's interesting because we look at all these different groups of nursing homes, uh, prisons, all these places that uh, maybe are at higher risk. But nobody has really looked at this that any of the papers we've seen that uh, group homes with intellectually and developmental, developmentally disla- disabled people are living in these like group homes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm having as much trouble as you. Uh, but it, in New it's York, it's been a really long holiday. It's been weekend. a long holiday weekend, and they were. But they have a very elevated risk of COVID-19 in, in these group homes. And it's interesting that the case rate was actually 8% uh, amongst this group of patients and compared with 2% for the general population in New York State, so four times. And their their fatality rate was actually double. That's so, crazy. So, yeah, I mean, I think that as a group, that's another group that we need to look at. Look at as far as disparities? Yes. All right. So... Moving now on. we're moving on. We're on to July 1 already now. Again, another kiddo thing. So this is from the Journal of Emerging Infectious Diseases. Oh, man. Luhiler? I don't know how to say that. I'm sorry if you're listening. I mean, that'd be really cool if you are, but I'm really sorry. I just bashed your name. Um, so they looked at 23 kids who had COVID-2, which, of course, is not that many but that this is important, especially when you're looking at kids, because, you know, we've read and heard a lot of articles and different talks saying that kids, you know, even if they get it, they don't really transmit it. They don't get as severely ill, which, of course, we just heard about with the MISC. They can get really ill. But of these 23 kids, they found that neonates that have symptoms, children and teenagers, they do actually do shed infectious culture competence. So it's not just dead virus. It's actually live virus. Um like COVID-19, suggesting that you can, kids can spread this to others. Yeah. So I mean, teachers. The, yeah. It's, there's some people that are saying that the, the spread rate is low, but uh, it's certainly plausible. So moving on to uh, the Lancet Public Health, large study done in the UK by Hewitt et al. Uh, it was actually UK, 10 hospitals in the UK and one in, in Italy. Uh, and this is sometimes the words they use over there are different, but uh, they found that a clinical frailty. 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 <laughs> so if the you can't read this word, you get a point on the clinical frailty. frailty. 
uh, scale was was a better predictor of COVID nineteen disease outcome than either age or comorbidity. So it's that look factor. It's like, ooh, he looks he looks frail. Frail. And apparently, you can like s- Kurt last week with his back. My gosh, you would have scored like a four out of five, and I'd have walked in there be like, you, you got like a week to live. Um, but yeah, frailty is uh, a better predictor. But they must have some way of like. You know, scoring this. I'd like to see. That. I want to know what's on that score because when they start asking me those questions, I want to lie. Cause the minute they the minute they say, "Yeah, you're over six. We're not treating you." Uh, anyway, you're gonna die. So Sorry. no, what is it? I wonder. Yeah, and if you can just if it's that whole doctor intuition. Yeah, how hard is it for you to get out of a chair? Why? You know. <laughs> I'm not answering that. <laughs> that question. All right. From the Journal of Infection, um, lying, laying at all, um, they looked at 15,302 COVID-19 cases over, it's a meta-analysis over 19 studies, and, you know, they looked at all these relevant confounding things, but hypertension was a huge increased risk of adverse outcomes among COVID-19 patients. So I'm assuming this means controlled hypertension, but yet Losartan is beneficial. Yep, Which or actually any any of them. So it's just absurdum. interesting. Yeah. All right. Anyway, last for the day, well, for this day that we were doing. No, there's two more, but that's uh, okay. Go for it. Oh, that's interesting because I didn't do the other one. But let's just uh, let's go to public health policy and practice. There was a little little something in the Journal of Rural Health, mm-hmm. and uh, being rural, this is uh, scaring us a little. What? Little Falls is rural. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Because our county is smaller than my town that I grew up in. Yeah, you can mail a letter here. It takes like three days to get across town. That's how rural we are. But, um, And this was actually uh, based on some data from the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System that 50% of rural residents are at high risk for hospitalization and serious illness if they're being infected by COVID-19 hmm. compared to 47% of micropolitan and 40% of metropolitan areas. Is it like Neapolitan ice cream? I think it is. I've never even heard of <laughs> micropolitan. Either way, I like the next line. Uh, so anyway, if you're rural, you're you're more likely to have risk factors and trouble. But it says it will generate an estimated 10% more hospitalized patients per capita you know, than urban. I'm moving to the city tomorrow. Because we only have like Three and a half ventilators in our hospital. So that could be oh. with your frailty score, you're screwed. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> sir, I'd like to ask you a few frailty questions. I can't say that word. Okay, we're gonna move on again. Last one from July first. MMWR Sanchez. Um, we're looking at 26 Detroit skilled nursing facilities, an attack rate of 44 percent among skilled nursing facilities. That's, I mean, that's almost half of all residents in the nursing homes. Within 21 days of diagnosis, 37% of the infected patients were hospitalized and 24% died. Almost a quarter of patients died from a nursing home. A quarter of the infected patients. Yes, a quarter of the 44% infected patients. Yes. So, I mean, that's still high. Yeah. That's, so if you get it, you're screwed. Just kidding. Um, yeah, that's no good. So, yeah, basically you need to have a lot of infection control, these the mental health in these nursing homes, I can't even imagine how awful it's been. Oh, the last couple. I'm burning out. July 2nd. Yeah, so here's a preprint by Harris. How and do you get all the good name, easy names? Yeah, Harris, that was easy. 
Um, but basically, they they looked at the daily incidence of newly reported COVID nineteen cases among really the adults that twenty to fifty nine and greater than sixty in sixteen counties in Florida. You know where we're going. Uh, and soon, this was soon after that full phase one reopening and full phase one, full phase Isn't one. Isn't that like reopening. an oxymoron? It is. And uh, <laughs> I'm not even going to talk to you. Um, <laughs> the author actually coupled this with some analysis, stuff we would not understand. And, and it's really supported the hypothesis that the, the hypothesis that the younger <laughs> persons, I've got sick first and then uh, by their social contacts with their peers, transmitted their infections to us older people and less socially mobile. <laughs> I'm clearly socially mobile. This is why um, Kurt and I are actually in separate rooms because he is yeah, high not, in the I'm frailty not, score. Oh, yeah, and high old. frailty score. Um, but yeah, so, you know, this is something that we knew is that the younger people are getting together and, and basically infecting each other and then spreading it to other older gents and ladies. <laughs> that was very old of you. <laughs> you sniffled. You need a Kleenex on your shirt sleeve. <laughs> yeah, it's like frailty. Anyway, we're going to kind of combine these next two studies because they're very, very similar. So one of them came from uh, Weinberger <laughs> from JAMA Internal Medicine, and the other one came from Wolf from just JAMA. But basically, they're looking at the same thing. How many deaths and the increased deaths, excess deaths from last year for a time period compared to this year. And a bottom line is there is an excess of all-cause deaths then during the same period. In the one study, it showed 28% higher than the previous year, but that they don't necessarily exactly know where they're all attributed to, whether it's COVID, whether it's I'm afraid of getting COVID at the hospital, so I've stayed home. There's a whole chunk of them that they haven't even been able to kind of pinpoint where these excess deaths came from. Yeah, I think clearly they're either directly or indirectly probably related to the COVID-19 because there, there has been a lot of ER visit data about how low that is now and that people don't go in. So, yeah, very interesting. Uh, moving on. Now, this a, is the counteract one of... Oh, for the mask filtration. The masking. So, yeah, this is another mask deal and is very interesting because there were... In this study, uh, they didn't feel like there was significant degradation of mask filtration efficiency in tests um, that really were affected by heat uh, and their heat protocol and the way that they were sterilizing masks at this at this system at this system and um, and they were you know they were doing this and then trying to reuse these N95s and filtering face piece um, respirators. So basically, they came up with this thing that three out of five models passed fit testing after heating. And two models that did not pass fit testing also had low fit scores prior to heating. So, so why were saying, they using the low fit yeah, ones you're, anyway? You're getting the one that doesn't work well because. <laughs> so basically, I don't this like is you. the answer to the other study because the other one was that whole autoclave and alcohol treatment. This is just yeah, heating, just heating, and they say it's practical. So this andereg should call the other author. Yeah, but the bottom line is, if you got a crappy mask to start with. If you heat it, it's still a bad mask. So why were you even using it in the first place? But, yeah, it makes no sense. All right. Last one. You guys are so grateful that we're done today. This is a preprint from Willem et al. This one talks about these household bubbles, which is kind of a little complicated. Um, this was a study done in Belgium. But basically they're looking at children, again, 
and school closures and separating people for like this is the whole partial school closures and all these different ways that they're trying to talk about kids going back to school to try to avoid complete distance learning but yet trying to avoid everybody going back full time and so they've kind of thrown out all these ideas as partial school closures but really the partial options really have relatively little impact on the COVID-19 burden and that's just because it takes more time. Like the whole four day thing between is just not enough time to like be able to get a symptom out and a t- positive test to prove that a person is safe to go back. And then contact trace them. Yes. So moral of the story, they have to go back full time. <laughs> yeah. And then they can't visit any of their elders like you're, Kurt. You're going to send your kids back no matter what. I am. So... Well, that's all we I have. told the future kindergarten teacher, Marge, if you're listening, that Kylie's coming to your house every day, even if they don't have school this fall. So moving on, uh, <laughs> on Tuesday, we have uh, Dr. Patel from the Mayo Clinic yes. coming to talk. She is the head of the microbiology department there. She's been on previously, and she has got some great stuff, as usual. And then the following Tuesday, we have uh, Dr. Amanda Nazca again. Yeah, Dr. Nazca is going to come and blow our minds with all of the crazy stuff going on in Duluth at Essentia Health. And following that, what do you think, Dr. Bell? Is that when we have I don't our know special we guest? Should, I don't know if we should announce it yet. I don't know if it's been officially official. Oh. So you'll I'll have to, maybe, maybe on Tuesday when we summarize, Dr. Patel's will be able to uh, give you the official exciting who's coming on yeah. in two weeks. It's a, it's a big deal. Cliffhanger. All right. Well, thank you, Battle Legs, for taking over and getting me out of this. <laughs> yes, I've had just about enough. This is way past Grandpa Cletus's bedtime at 9.35. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. See you next week. Keep your eyes well peeled today. The excise man is on his way. Searching for the mountain tay in the hills of Connemara. Gather up the pots and the oats and can The mash, the corn, the barley and the bran Unlike the double from the excise man Keep the smoke from rising barney Swing to the left, swing to the right The excise man will dance all night Drinking up the tea in the broad daylight In the hills of Connemara Gather up the pots and the oats and can The mash, the corn, the barley and the bran Unlike the devil from the excise man Keep the smoke from rising barney Yelling for the butcher, a quart for Tom A bottle for old Father John To help the poor old man along In the hills of Connemara Gather up the pots and the oats and can The mash, the corn, the barley and the bran Run like the devil from the excise man Keep the smoke from rising barney Men are at the wall Jesus Christ, they're drinking it all In the hills of Connemara Gather up the pots and the oats and can The mash, the corn, the barley